Genesis chapter 35. And let me just say two things while you find it. First, if you are visiting with us, we're glad you're here. Uh, we know it's a holiday weekend and there's a lot of places that, uh, that you could be, but we're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us today, we would love to connect with you. We have a welcome desk that's right outside the door here, and there's a little Get Connected card. You also can fill that out online. We'd love to have a, a record of your visit, know how we can pray for you, follow up with you, and we also have a little gift for you there at that welcome table as well. And let me also just say to those of you who call Crossroads home and are regularly here how thankful we are for your giving. <laughs> Uh, even through pandemic and everything else that we've been through in the last uh, season. Uh, the Lord has been faithful. He has provided, and we're thankful for that. And while you're in and out over the summer, just remember online giving is available on our website. There's a number there you can text. Uh, we also have buckets here and also uh, at the back on your way out. And again, thank you for your continued uh, generosity uh, to this ministry and to this church, and to God's mission through it. So we appreciate that. So Genesis chapter 35, in the second to last week of our series in the book of Genesis, then we're going to take a break for a little while and look at a few other things. But Genesis chapter 35, we'll begin reading in verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that is near Shechem. As they, and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak near Bethel. So he called its name Elon Bakthath. God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he'd spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he'd spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they, had, when they were some distance from Ephrath, Rebekah went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have another son. 
And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So so Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher, these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padamaram. And Jacob said to his father Isaac, at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. This is the word of God. Let's start with a bit of trivia. What phone app was used by one billion people every month last year? Any thoughts? Any thoughts? Nothing? Nobody? Well, if you wanted to know, the app that was used one by one billion people every month last year was Google Maps, interestingly enough. One billion people used that app every month last year, and many of us can remember the world prior to Google Maps and prior to GPS. You travel somewhere and you'd have the big map out and have to figure out where you're going. And it seems almost impossible to think now to travel without having the phone tell you where to turn and where to go or to even have to go on your own instinct, right? But now imagine Jacob, the patriarch of Israel. He has traveled hundreds of miles on foot long before GPS long before Google Maps, and long before even having a physical map to follow. And Genesis 35 brings us toward the end of Jacob's journey and the end of the life of his father Isaac. And Moses has sort of organized this closing chapter as sort of a Google Maps history of Jacob. It's sort of having to see where he stopped and where he went as he journeyed from the land of Canaan back to his home in the Oaks of Mamre. And Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants to recount this journey home, and he wants to highlight for us three stops or three places where Jacob stopped. He's going to talk to us about his stop in Bethel, his stop in Bethlehem, and his stop in Mamre. And each of these stops, if you remember, are familiar places Jacob has been, and it's almost like his life is being summarized here on his journey home. So let's look at Jacob's Google Maps history, right? And we'll see the first place he stopped was in Bethel for a blessing. He stopped in Bethel for a blessing. Notice verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. 
So Jacob has just spent an undisclosed amount of time living in Canaan among wicked people. And if you remember, two of those people in particular were Shechem and Hamor, who were Hivites. And while in Canaan, Jacob's daughter Dinah was violated. We saw that last week. And his sons went and murdered a whole tribe of men. And if you recall, God has told Jacob repeatedly to get back home, to go home And through many detours, he's finally making the journey home. And on the way back, Jacob must stop at a familiar place. He must stop at Bethel. Back in Genesis 28, Jacob encountered God at Bethel and received glorious promises that were originally given to his grandfather, Abraham. Bethel was toward the beginning of Jacob's journey. And now as he comes to the end of it, he must go back to the place where it all began. Jacob knew he was approaching holy grounds. Look what he called his sons to do. Look at this, verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Notice that Jacob seems to get a wake-up call here. He's been rather passive as he has dwelt in this land. Notice there was even idols among his family that they were worshiping. And now he calls his family back to holiness, back to purity, to quote the later book of Joshua, as for Jacob and his house, they will serve the Lord. And notice how he refers to God. Look at verse 3 again. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob realizes that God has been with him through the hills and the valleys, that Yahweh isn't an idol that can be buried and hidden under a tree, but he's the true and living God. And I bet, as Jacob said this, the vow he made last at Bethel probably echoed in his mind. When he first came to Bethel and he encountered God, he responded with a vow. And here's what this vow said, Genesis 28, 20. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I will come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And now we see that in this vow, God had kept his end of the deal. God had been with Jacob. He would provided for him and he is now headed back home to his father's house in peace. And this led Jacob to respond by building an altar and worshiping. Look at verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So Jacob returns to this place, recounts the blessings of God upon him, and he builds an altar to recall all that occurred to him. 
But even in this return, there would, it wouldn't be without mourning. It wouldn't be without suffering. Even as he returns, we must recognize, and the passage reminds us that Jacob has never been alone on the journey. Recall he has an ever-growing family. He has livestock. He has servants with him. Then they have been with him through this whole thing. Jacob wasn't dealing with all of this alone, and he had a community around him that was experiencing suffering with him. And we get a glimpse into what it looked like to journey these long miles with this small nation with him. Look at verse 8. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elan Bakthuth, or Oak of Weeping. We get a glimpse into the fact that there are lots of people, people who are nameless to us that were along with Jacob on these travels. His choices impacted far more than him. And Deborah here was mentioned briefly back in chapter 24 and isn't really named until this moment. She was Jacob's mother's nurse, Rebecca's nurse, and she'd been with him all the way through slavery and exodus from Laban and had been with him thousands of miles. She dies and is laid under the oak there in Bethel. And certainly contemporary readers would have known exactly where this is. God has been good to Jacob, even allowing his mother's nurse to walk alongside him so he did not walk alone. And it is here in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of coming back to where it all began, that God appears to him and reaffirms his promise to him. Look at verse 9. Look at this. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he has spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he'd spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. And a lot of this reading that you're like, this sounds familiar. At least I hope it does because here we get a combination of all the promises that have followed Jacob throughout his travels. His new name is reaffirmed. God speaks a promise to him from the Garden of Eden. Be fruitful and multiply. We see the promises spoken to Abraham reaffirmed to him. God was going to give him offspring. He'll be fruitful and he'll multiply. Nations will come from him and kings from his body. God was going to give his people land, particularly the land that Jacob's now leaving. And God would bless him along the way with his presence and with his protection. And receiving this waterfall of promises leads Jacob to worship God, which is something we rarely see him do in Genesis. And he stops and worships the Lord. As Jacob makes his journey back home, his first stop was in Bethel for a blessing. He sees God's goodness 
all over his life. He has promises reaffirmed to him, but Jacob can't stay in Bethel forever. He has many more miles to go, so he goes to his second stop now. He stops in Bethlehem for a birth, a burial, and a betrayal. He's got a lot that's going to happen to him here in Bethlehem. A birth, a burial, and a betrayal. Look at verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. This whole episode progresses quickly. We learn that Rachel is not simply pregnant, but now giving birth. The twelfth and final son of Israel is born, named Ben-Onai, which means son of sorrows or son of strength, but is called by his father, Benjamin, or son of his right hand. And we have alongside this new life, a life ending. We see Jacob here in Bethlehem celebrates a baby shower and a funeral. Rachel dies during childbirth, and we hear all about her burial in Ephrath, which is known as Bethlehem. Rachel's buried north of Bethlehem, and there's a pillar over her tomb. And recall the original readers of Genesis thousands of years ago would have known where these landmarks were and been familiar with them. And we find that Jacob's journey of faith wasn't going to be without heartbreak. Going back home wasn't going, to be wasn't going to be without difficulty for him. He's had to bury Deborah, who was likely like a second mother to him. And now he's having to bury Rachel, the one who delighted his eyes and who he labored for for 14 years to have. And the heartbreak doesn't end there. Because there was a birth, a burial, and there was betrayal. Look at what happens in verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So Jacob is living outside of Bethlehem, and the unthinkable happens. Reuben, his oldest son, uh, gets with, sleeps with Bilhah, his concubine, who's the mother of some of Reuben's siblings. Gross, right? Absolutely disgusting, gross, freaky, weird, whatever word you want to put on it, right? And consider the sort of betrayal, though, this must have been to Jacob. It's one thing for your wife to be unfaithful. It's another for your wife to be unfaithful with your son. That's a little bit of a strange moment, right? And Moses then, out of nowhere, interrupts this sort of daytime soap opera with a genealogy. Very Genesis-like of him, right? And I hope we know this, this genealogy that follows isn't some sort of commercial break here for us, but is rather here to cause us to reflect. Look at verse 22. Look at this. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, 
the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. We get a recounting of the sons, yes, but it also should prompt a question to us. Who is going to receive the promises given to Jacob? Who will receive it? Because it's clear Jacob isn't likely going to live long enough to bring these promises to completion. I mean, it says nations and kings are going to come through you. Which son will inherit the promise? This passage doesn't tell us immediately what happens, but consider that Jacob, here's what happens from Reuben with Reuben and Bilhah. And in Genesis 49, we'll see that this act would ultimately cost Reuben the inheritance as the firstborn. As the firstborn, he should have received this promise. But as with, with all that occurred here, he blew it. In fact, the first three children would be skipped over to receive the promise because of sin that they committed. Reuben, for what happened in chapter 35 here, but also Simeon and Levi, who we saw last week, murdered a whole tribe of men in chapter 34, we come to find out that it would be Judah, the fourth son of Jacob and Leah, who would be the son of the inheritance. And this genealogy is here to cause us to reflect for the drama to build which of these sons would inherit the promise. And on Jacob's journey, he stopped in Bethel for a blessing. And in Bethlehem, he experienced birth, burial, and betrayal, and he still isn't home yet. But he does eventually get back home. And Jacob concludes his journey at his third and final stop. He stops in Mamre for mourning. He finishes his journey in Mamre for mourning. Look at verse 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where, I, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. So he's home. He's finally made it. And rather than being met with a party, Jacob is met with yet another funeral. Look at verse 28. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Recall that back in chapter 27, long before Jacob and Esau left, Isaac thought he was at death's door. That kind of is what caused the whole stealing of the blessing situation with Jacob and Esau. Isaac thought he was good as dead 20 years ago. But now we come to, to him nearly two decades later to his death. And, and Esau and Jacob meet again to bury their father, who we hear is, who was old and full of years. And Jacob has come home, and for a moment, he's brought to peace with his family, just as God promised he would do. Jacob, like many of us, has family that he only sees at funerals. As he and Esau unite for what we appears to be one of the last times recorded for us. And Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, is memorialized in Mamre and we're told later, buried with his father Abraham. But there's also a silence 
in the text that I think we need to hear. There's, some, there's a prominent character missing that we don't hear about right away. Well, if, if you recall and you read through it, we have heard nothing about Rebecca, the wife of Isaac and the mother of Jacob and Esau. We don't hear that he sees her, encounters her, hears from her at all. In fact, we're not even told that she dies until Genesis 49 when we learn that she did eventually die and, and was buried alongside her father. I think this is implying for us that Rebekah died long before Jacob ever came home and Jacob returns home to find out his mother has long passed away and his father is on death's door. And so Mamre, a place that was known to be home, becomes a place of a memorial service. Jacob has made it home and along the way celebrated a number of funerals. And Jacob has taken a journey of faith, and though it's taken decades, he is finally where God had called him to be as the man that God would have him be. He's no longer, he left home as Jacob the deceiver, single, in conflict, and self-focused. But he comes home as Israel, the father of God's nation, full of family and blessing, at peace with a heavenly focused. Oh, what a life of faith. Oh, what a change that a life of faith can make. Oh, how the journeys of faith is full of twists and turns, but God promises to bring his people to where he would have them be. And this last chapter is so key because for Jacob's maturity to reach its peak, he had to stop at various places along the journey. And I believe that you must do the same. Jacob wasn't ready to look forward in faith until he looked back on God's grace. I've left the central point of this passage at the end for us this week because in Genesis 35, we need to see that looking back on God's grace in our life empowers us to move forward in God's will for our life. Looking back on God's grace in your life empowers you to move forward into God's will for your life. And the New Testament actually illustrates the same truth because if you study grace long enough, you'll see that the churchy definition we often give for grace, we say grace is unmerited favor, that that doesn't quite get at the whole picture. Yes, grace is unmerited favor from God, God's goodness to the undeserving, but grace is also power. Grace is also power. Look at what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.10. Look at this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Notice that the grace of God works. The grace of God was what empowered Paul to be all that he was. It was the power behind his power, the oomph behind his labor, the fuel tank for his Christian life. Paul could look over his whole life and see, and he often did see, that God's grace was all over him, and his life was not in vain. His sufferings were not 
purposeless. His past tests were testimonies, and the power of God was all over his life. And friends, if you are in Jesus, the grace and power of God is all over your life as well. Paul recounts his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, which is quickly becoming one of my favorite passages. Look at this, 1 Timothy 1.12. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received grace because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The grace of God leaves fingerprints everywhere. You just got to look for it. Just consider Paul, once an accomplice in murdering Christians, would eventually be murdered and executed in a jail cell as a Christian. If God could make a minister out of a murderer and a preacher out of a persecutor and an apostle, out of an opponent, what can he do to you? If God can do this for Paul, what can he do for you? And I believe some of us are not walking in faith because we've stopped considering God's grace in our past. Many of us are not walking with obedience in the present because we don't look back enough. That's why I think things like July 4th are absolutely wonderful. We should look back at God's grace to us individually and and God's grace in our nation and upon the place that we live. Looking back is good. The Bible actually gives us this, and that's why it commends thankfulness. To us, because thankfulness looks back and sees God's hand and then looks up and gives God praise. Thankfulness looks back to see God's hand and looks up to give God's praise. And it's important that Jacob look back, but that he doesn't live there. You look back to see grace, but you don't live in the past because, friends, that's how bitterness and resentment grow. We don't live there, but we do look back there with hearts of praise and thanksgiving. And that's what empowers us to walk in faith in the present. To live in the past is to be disobedient. Recall Jacob lingering in Canaan. But to visit the past with eyes of faith is an act of worship. If you were like Jacob, if God allowed you to take a walk back through the journey of your life, what would be stopping places for you? If God were to take you over a walk, over the Google Maps history of your faith, where would he have you stop? I've left a few blanks there at the bottom of your notes if you want to do this, whether it's to fill in a date in your life or a place, but to think about places on your faith journey that you need to visit with your heart and with your mind to reflect on God's grace in your life. Maybe you need to note there the date or the place where you first were saved and encountered Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I can remember where I was alone in my house, February of my freshman year, as I opened up the Word of God, and I read for the first time about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And there, as clear as day, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, He did that for you. 
and Romans 5, 8 washed over my life that God demonstrated his love for me and that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And from that day, though imperfectly, I came to know the Lord and be transformed. Do you have a moment like that you can visit in your own life? Have you come to realize that the cross isn't simply decorative jewelry or simply some, some, some pretty thing you should go buy and hang up on a wall, but the cross is God's declaration of God's love for humanity, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again for our justification, for our new life, so that sins might be forgiven. And that in light of the cross and of the empty tomb, God calls you to respond in repentance and faith. To those who are perishing, the cross is foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Have you come to realize the hope and the power of God? of the cross. I know in my life I could put down here on the list there are tons of places after I became a Christian where godly men mentored me. I could take you if you were going to walk through the the Google Maps of my life to the office of a pastor at an Owen, at a church in Owensboro who would often bring me into his office and and he has since passed and often I would visit his grave to be reminded of all that God's grace through him did in my life. I could drive you past Yellow Creek Baptist Church right outside of Owensboro where those people loved me, drove me to church when I was a teenager and couldn't drive and loved me for 10 years. I could take you to the Starbucks that's there, not far from there, where I would often meet to be discipled and to disciple other people. These are pillars of grace, moments to visit with thankfulness, with your heart, and even maybe go visit with your feet. Do you have places like that in your life? In fact, this sort of remembrance is why the church has been given ordinances, why we've been given baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because baptism and the Lord's Supper are meant to be objective reminders, something outside of our experience that reminds us of God's gospel and His grace. Some of us may not remember the moment that we came to faith, but some of us may remember our baptism later on. Baptism is meant to be an objective reminder for us of God's grace in our life. We're immersed under the water and lifted up to picture the new life that is ours in the gospel. If I may be frank, baptism isn't meant for, for babies to be sprinkled but rather for believers, believing disciples to be immersed and lifted back out, a picture of what has happened in their heart. When was the last time you gave thought to your baptism? And God has given us, even beyond baptism, a more regular stop on our journey of faith, a regular destination we can go to and reflect on God's grace and goodness in the gospel, and it is the Lord's Supper. That's why he has given us the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul wrote to believers that this meal is meant to be a regular stop on our journey of faith to remind us of what Jesus has done. The bread broken, the cup, his shed blood for our sins. So let me close with having you consider this. Where are you in your journey of faith? 
Maybe you haven't even begun the walk of faith with Jesus, and here's what you need to do. If you have, if you have not begun the walk of faith with Jesus and you would like to, you can begin that through, through today through faith in Christ, to pray and call out to him, and he'll hear you to say, God, I'm a sinner, and to say, I believe that Jesus Christ has come, and he has died, and he has risen again to forgive me of my sin, and to confess that you are my Savior and my Master, and friends, he will meet you right where you are. The Bible says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe you've trusted Christ, but you need to take the first step of baptism. If you've never been baptized by immersion uh, since making a profession of faith, I'd love to talk to you more about that and, and about having you follow Jesus' example through believers' baptism. But for those of us who have believed and who, and, and who are on our journey of faith, the Lord's Supper is meant to us today to be a second sermon a reminder and an interruption into your life. It's God getting a hold of you and going, here's what's important. And causing us to look back with thankful hearts and press forward in faith. So in these next moments, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. I want us to wait. The scripture says to wait for one another and to take it together. But I do want us to prepare our hearts with worship, and to be reminded what 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six reminds us of, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's stand, and let's pray, and let's prepare to worship together. Father God, you are good. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness toward us. Lord, thank you on our journey of faith. You've given us places we can stop. You've given us an encouragement to look back with hearts of thankfulness so that we can press forward in the life of faith. Lord, I do ask now that you would cause us by grace to look back. Maybe on the place where we first met you, maybe on a church or a family member's house where the gospel was faithfully shared with us. Maybe to look and see just the places where people mentored us and loved us and cared for us. Maybe to look back and remember the day of our baptism. Or to look back and see that you, the grace, your grace is all over our life. I pray right now that if there's anybody within the sound of my voice who has not begun the walk of faith, that you would, by the Holy Spirit, prompt them and have them now to begin that walk through repentance and faith. I pray that you would have us to prepare our hearts to worship you through the Lord's Supper together. And I ask and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.